to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is filmmaker, animator, artist, musician, I think, uh, Clive Peterson. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Now, I know it's a, I know it's an audio um, medium that we're talking on, but can you can I know we were talking about where you are at the moment. Can you just describe where you are, the, the islands off Seattle that maybe are closer to Canada? Yeah, right now I'm sitting in a wooden boat that's in the forest, not on the ocean. Yeah, and I'm about 20 miles south of Vancouver, BC, hoping the island breaks off from its footing and drifts into Canadian territory at any moment. <laughs> Escape the USA. Yeah, that's the hope. But realistically, I'm about an hour and a half north of Seattle. Now we're here to talk about the documentary you've made about the band Earth, Even Hell Has Its Heroes, and then we're going to talk about three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. Um, but before we before we get into the three films then, let's let's t- let's start with the documentary. And, and I guess the best place to start is where does a documentary about Earth begin? I've interviewed lots of people about music documentaries, and I can't believe how many of them start off with, I just had a camera and, and I started filming the band. And that became a documentary. So where does the documentary start for you? I wish that the documentary had started with, I just had a camera. <laughs> um, let's see. I think in 2007, I met Earth for the first time through our mutual bandmate, Steve Moore. Mm-hmm. He plays trombone and keyboard in, in Earth and in my band, Your Heartbreaks. It was just before The Bees Made Honey and The Lion's Skull was coming out and Steve had mentioned that they needed some help, some managerial help getting ready for touring. Mm -hmm. In the past, Randall Dunn had been doing that work, but it's a lot of work to like record, produce, tour manage, and manage a band. So he was kind of stepping away and I had been touring and tour managing and managing some other bands that Steve were in. And I was stepping away from those. So we kind of just did a little bit of a shuffle, mm-hmm. a Rubik's Cube move. Mm-hmm. And I worked for Earth for five years as their manager. Uh-huh. And it was, it was a great five years. We had a, a great run. I mean, from Bees Made Honey to Angels of Darkness, Demons of Light to... Um, we did a lot of work with Southern Lord. They toured a lot. They made five records, I believe, in that time. And they grew like exponentially in popularity to a point where like I was not necessarily like a good manager for them anymore. Like when I started working for them, they just like didn't have an email address. And I was like, well, surely I can make you an email address. <laughs> like they had a landline, would call them, leave long messages until they picked up, you know, like we were they were very much moving from like the analog world into like having email yeah and that's stuff i know about i'm not like a los angeles style manager i don't have like huge connections um so after five years it was kind of like mutually agreed that like they should go find a manager in los angeles to like continue to up their game or you know just have access to doing soundtracks and stuff like that. Mm. And I moved on to start making my first feature film. 
So in that time, I wish I had a camera and I wish I had been filming, but <laughs> I was really busy working. You know, I was very busy, like emailing and mailing merch and driving a van. So in the time that I made my first feature, Tory Pines, mm. Dylan, Dylan and Adrian and some of the Earth crew did some of the soundtracking for that. And we all played the soundtrack live at the premiere in Seattle. Oh, wow. And it was like at that show that I had been kind of like gently asking Dylan, like, we should make a film, you know? It's it's like tender to ask someone to talk about their lives and open up. So um, it was at that screening that he was like, at the end of the movie, he's like, let's, let's do it. Let's make a film. <laughs> there was a point um, within that touring where Dylan got really sick. And a lot of us were like, he might die. Like, oh, this wow. is, this might be his. And, um, you know, he made it through. So that was a, a big, like, feeling of urgency, too. Like, mm. I have this access and I have, like, a lot of deep knowledge of these of these night creatures. Like, I should see if they want to speak their truth or whatever. Like, I can turn on a camera. Mm. That's the long-winded way of saying I had a camera, but it took a long time to warm them up, up to being open to it because of previous experiences they'd had mm. and had felt betrayed by. Yeah, so, so what I should say as well then is that Earth as a band are, I guess, one of the pioneers of what we now call drone rock. I mean, slow heavy metal is another description sludge and various other terms that people use um i've as a, as a fan i've been listening since earth 2 i remember i remember reading a review that said of earth 2 in particular that said this is like flotation tank music and immediately wanted to know what that will sound like and it's pretty accurate i think if you if you listen to earth 2 but and then i think it was what what i found fascinating about him was was the minimalism of it all and then I think it was the fourth album where drums were included and it felt like an orchestra <laughs> compared, to, compared to what I'd been used to. It's amazing how when a, when, a, when a music is so minimal and so concentrated on just the drone, and, and I remember, I think it's on some of the documentary stuff that's with one of the, the album CDs that Dylan talks about listening to finding the module finding your own modulation with is it is it modu oscillation sorry finding your own oscillations within the drone so you tune in which blew my mind completely that i could be listening to something completely different to somebody else and it's the same tune yeah absolutely i think about that a lot yeah i mean there's 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 a there's another band that that did a did a uh, there's a band called godhead silo i don't know if you're familiar with them I do. Mike Kunka. And one of their records, they have an 11-minute one-note bass solo, which is quite the phenomenal thing, given it's only a 35-minute album. And when, when that starts, I always find myself going, oh, my goodness, I've got to brace myself now for an 11-minute one-note solo. And then partway through, it does that thing that Dylan talks about, which is I suddenly start to find the oscillations in it I mean, it's just a repetitive thing. I mean, you're a musician, you know exactly what that must be, you know. And then at the end of it, I feel like I've achieved something. All I've done is listen to it. Yeah. 
I I love um I love that band and some of them yeah live out here in the northwest in the forest too. Yeah, I might, well yeah, I guess they're a sub pop band, aren't they? I suppose they, well, they were a sub pop band back in when I was listening to them. Yeah. My digression aside, there, I just thought I'd give some context for for the listener about the music that you were covering because I think the idea of the big, a band becoming big is not unusual, but I think for music that's not necessarily embracing the mainstream. In, in a sense, for them to grow to the need to have an L.A. manager, as you put it, makes it, you know, they're not Bruce Springsteen by any stretch of the imagination, are they, in terms of what they're making? It's a very atmospheric and yeah. almost like, I can't, I can't, is therapeutic the right word? It can be, I suppose. It's, it's, it can do that for you. What was the trust What was the trust you had to convince them that you were going to do as a filmmaker? What did, what did you say to gain that trust that they didn't have maybe a filmmaker full stop in the start? We went into the film with this just handshake agreement that like I could film anything and ask anything, but they could cut anything. So there was, I mean, it's not necessarily a traditional documentary in that sense. Uh In the end, they did not cut anything, which, you know, it was like nerve wracking to take it to the theater and and sit with like 20 members of Earth and be like, (laughs) Here, here is what I made of your story. I hope you like it. I, I was like shaking halfway through the screening, just like I couldn't stop shaking. And at the end, they were just like, we love it. It's like, oh my great. Because I was very worried. You know? I can imagine. Yeah, so that was just the agreement. Like, I, you know, there are like moments of talking about grief in the film. And that was like, really we really worked up to that Mm. and like worked up to like providing a really like gentle space for like Dylan to talk about grief and let it out a little bit Mm -hmm. and and um with the you know obvious rule that like he can cut it if he doesn't want it in there so yeah okay that's interesting um yeah because I guess it's freedom to do what you want but obviously there's there's not pressure on them to accept everything you're doing, which is, I guess, is a kind of, it, it, it creates its own trust then because you kind of, you're not scared of saying anything because you can say anything. And at the same time, you're not scared to ask anything because they can remove it if they're not comfortable. Yeah. I think there's like a lot of documentaries that are like very, you know, exploitation yeah. centered, whether they want to admit it or not. Right. Like yeah, documentary as a film sport is like vaguely exploitation narrative a lot and like when I in approaching this film like I just wanted them to be able to tell their own story Mm. like how how they saw themselves like I don't I didn't want the film to be like how I saw them I just wanted them to to like talk about their lives and just capture that a little bit you know I was was watching an interview with Errol Morris talking about Gates of Heaven and in that he says uh, you investigate you look, you think, you study in the hope that you can learn something about the world. So if I, what what did you learn? I mean, having worked with Earth, you, knew, you obviously knew them. Uh, and that five years is a, is a long time to get to know anybody, never mind work with them. Um, so what did you learn about Earth's world from making the film? Well, I think it's funny. I try not to like read film reviews. I just, I, I dash in once in a while and, and look at them to just see... <laughs> what people are thinking, but they really stick in my mind in a bad way. So, but someone wrote in in a review, like, 
you don't really learn about Dylan. And I'm like, there's nothing to learn. Like, he is a guitar player. Like, I'm just showing you what he does in the movie. Like, if you want me to film him watching the History Channel, I could. But, like, he really does, like, sleep, eat, and breathe guitar. Mm. And I think, like, there is this expectation that, like, when you watch a documentary that someone's going to spoon feed you these little facts about someone's life. And I didn't do too much spoon feeding, but I I really do feel like I just filmed what was. Like, mm. I didn't get a chance to go film the D&D game that I wanted to film, you know? <laughs> like, I would have loved to film Earth's Dungeon and Dungeons and Dragons game. Mm. But, you know, I, I, uh, what I learned is that they love playing music. And I kind of already knew that, but. Yeah. They are, like, maybe, like, front-facing people. They're not really hiding much. And I don't know. I think that's just like such a strange thing to request and demand in a film. Tell me everything. I don't know. I don't think you want to know everything. Oh God, no, no. But but is it? But but you in a, in a kind of privileged position from a, from an ordinary documentary filmmaker that would have been perhaps helicoptered in at the same point in their career because, like you said, I wish we had filmed stuff. You kind of you knew there'd been moments that could have been interesting for a documentary, you know, going on tour, for example, would have, I guess, as a tour manager, there's lots of tales of of what that might have been able to dredge up or not, you know, in terms of showing us who right. the band are. To be very on to be very honest, tour is so boring. Like you're just driving and Earth tours, you somehow the drives become twice as long. I think it's the cigarette breaks. Like you just wake up and you go to Starbucks. Like, that's what they want for breakfast. And then you drive for, like, nine hours, even though it's, like, a four-hour drive. And you're like, how did this drive become so long? And then there's, like, a bunch of cigarette stops, and then you load in, and you play a show, and you go to sleep. Like, that's an Earth tour. Mm. Once in a while, there's, like, a little hijinks, but, like, it's very, very dull. What do you think... Either you or they put down this kind of change in popularity. I mean, what 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 do you think is? I mean, I mean, the music has developed. The music has matured. I wouldn't say it's better, and I wouldn't say one's worse than the other. It's it's an evolution of a band, isn't it? But what is it in the water that <laughs> that they think is making them be you know play those bigger venues, you know, more sustainable touring than they would have been used to? Because um, because we're not to, we're still not talking stadium rock or anything. It's just more sustainable than it was. I'm guessing before when they would have toured and they could have maybe broke even. And if they did a lot of merch, that'd have been a good you know, they'd been a good tour kind of thing. For Earth, it feels just cumulative, like the, playing the long game. Mm. You know, just keep going. More people hear about your band. It's it certainly isn't like stadium selling, as you say, but I think. One thing that all of us see in the audiences is like this strange, like cross sections of all kinds of people mm. like jazz nerds, computer programmers, metal heads. Um, they kind of like have this very abstract draw that I 
don't see for very many bands. And I think it's like a superpower to be able <laughs> to speak to so many different people. And as you say, like everyone's hearing a different thing. I have this thought that like we are living in a society that just is perpetually propelling us forward and demanding that we move faster and faster and faster. Mm. And that like earth shows are a refuge for you to like slow down for a minute and to not be asked to speed up at all. I, I think that that is something that audiences get from their live shows. I, I used to get it every night on tour. I would mm. be like exhausted from driving and loading merch. And then I would just, they would start playing and I would just feel like this huge wash of relief on my body every night. And I'd be like, this is why we do it. <laughs> so strange magical but it's it's weirdly i mean they're not that musically they're nothing like them but in many ways it's a when you're describing the audience there it's like you could have been describing like an audience for the fall you know that mm-hmm. and, and 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 there's a kind of i guess i guess what i'm saying is there's like an, an enigmatic attraction to what they're doing that is i'm doing it anyway you can come with me but i ain't gonna it ain't gonna change for you but you can come along you're very welcome I love that philosophy of life. That is one of my favorite. I'm going to do it with or without you. Might as well enjoy the party. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like the fall definitely has like a similar draw. Had, has had a similar draw. Yeah. Interest. Yeah. And, and ironically, that idea of being able to switch off and both, both bands have, a, have been prolific. I mean, Earth still are prolific in terms of their output, certainly in the 21st century, they've, they've certainly, you know, there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of work out there for people to mine. And obviously that was a, a quality people associate with the fall. You know, it was like, it's a very working, very working class, almost like Protestant work ethic to, to like you say, for something that is also, Hey, let's just, let's just settle. Let's have a rest. Let's, have a rest. let's indulge ourselves in this, which is kind of the opposite of that as well. Yeah. I mean, earth is a working class band. Mm. So like, they have, for most of their lives, had jobs. Hmm. Uh, like Dylan worked at a picture frame shop for years. Um, Adrian worked as a barista for years. Uh, Don McGreevy ran like a side uh, mechanic shop in a garage while bartending nights. Like everyone has like two to four jobs mm. in the band earth and it's like they're just trying to get to the point where they can like just survive off their music you know as most bands are but yeah i think that working class um ethic can easily transfer over music if you're enjoying what you're doing absolutely when you were going through the process of of shooting what you wanted because they knew they could cut what they wanted what for you was the big discovery in the edit or big surprise for you in the edit. What 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 did you get that you that you didn't see when you were shooting that you began to see come together when you were in the edit with it? Uh, I felt like I walked away with like a time capsule. I entered the film process like attempting to interview every person that had ever played in Earth. Hmm. A few a few people turned me down. I think something I learned from that is it like not everyone wants to revisit the past. Mm. Um, it's not always a, 
a fun place to go. Yeah. And that was definitely something I took away from that. Like, oh, you you don't want to remember. I see. Okay, that's fine. Carry on. You know. Um. I think. What else did I learn from it? I mean, it was such a long journey. Five years. <laughs> But that process of editing is where you're trying to create the film then, aren't you? Because obviously you shoot and you get a lot more than you need, obviously. Yeah. So we had like 40 hours of interviews. Yeah. So how do you, t- what, what, yeah. what were you finding in that 40 hours interview that be, that, that was a, that, that, I mean, did you find, did you, did you feel the story emerging as you're shooting or did you find the story when you were editing? I think both. Okay. Um, the film was a little bit different in production than most films because it was shot on all super eight, which doesn't contain audio. The structure of the film is a bit like a cake. So the bottom layer is all super eight film, no audio, no synced audio, no talking heads. No one is in the film being like this band changed my life. Yeah. Uh, the second layer is, basically an, like an audio collage of interviews and oh, wow. you know that line up with different people it is like presented a bit chronologically mm-hmm. we don't go album by album we do kind of go like member by member throughout the timeline with a little bit of wiggling and then there's a third layer which is earth came into the studio at Mel Detmers and recorded a brand new soundtrack the film so they made 90 minutes of new music wow and then the top layer which is my favorite layer is um field recordings done by mel detmer and so mel spent like an extraordinary amount of time editing or cleaning up the audio from my messy audio and added adding like this beautiful layer of like nature into the film um so that's that's kind of the structure of like the film you'll see. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's a bit of an art film for sure. No, that's good. No, I like. I mean, on. I was going to say it, it sounds weirdly like. Um, are you familiar with the filmmaker Mark Jenkins, who did the film Bait and Ennismen? No, but I will. Okay, so he'd shot on defunct black and white Super A, all scratched up, and then home processed it. And then ADR'd the dialogue. So it's a feature film, not a documentary. And then he ADR'd the dialogue on after because it was it was quicker to shoot and shoot without syncing. And then it plays like almost like a spaghetti western because he isn't completely syncing it. But that becomes the style of the film. It's this because they're just two layers of 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 the production. Sounds amazing. And it, it's beautiful. It was a beautiful, very and equally just with what you were saying there about the layers. Um, in his second film, Ennis Men, which I mean, Neon picked up. It's bonkers when you when you see the film. It's a pure art film, and and it's just it's a study of his wife. His wife plays his character who's taking these readings of plant life on a remote island, and all the all the foley layers in and the and the music that's scored to it is is very, again he shot it on Color Super Eight. I think this on maybe Super Sixteen, and. And again, the the sound is like like the way you described it. It's it's a rest it's a recipe or layers like substrata, rather than the idea of I'm getting I'm capturing sound and audio. I'm capturing sound and audio. It's like I can build a better sound of what a crackling radio is 
after the event and just film a radio in the room. I'm looking forward. I mean, I'm, now I'm more excited to see the film now, knowing that there's uh, there's because it's very meta as well that, that they've made a score for the soundtrack of that's about them. That's kind of that's lovely and meta as well, isn't it? It was so fun. I mean, it was also like amazing that we did it that in 2019 and then COVID yeah. and like we would have been so much harder to do every single thing we did. So yeah, really snuck it in under the wire there. Brilliant. Each section about like the players in Earth, like that player was invited to come and score their own no. section too. So there's like all of this new Earth music primarily by Dylan and Adrian as a duo with some overdubs or like Bill Herzog would come in and play bass. Mm. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. For a day. And then, like, each section, um, like, individuals were allowed or invited, not allowed, but invited <laughs> to score their own stuff, which is so magical because then you get to hear their kind of like the music that makes their heart beat and like how it can enter into Earth's world, like, but then just solo. And so just like seeing what everyone would do every day was extremely wild. Like Bill Herzog just plays solo bass mm. in the style of the God Godhead silo <laughs> solo. <laughs> Like for like five minutes, you just play the same riff over and over. And I was like, what is Bill doing? Then I listened to it later and I'm like, this is the most magical thing I've ever oh, heard. Wow. And like Angelina Baldos came in with a like bucket of water, a trumpet and four pedals and made some like wildly experimental, beautiful music. So. Wow. It's like, it's, it's like it. you've, it's like you've started a process off and it's just mushroomed into different bits of its own. You could break down each one and have there's a piece of art on its on, of itself. And then you've wrangled it and made it into a I mean, I've wrangled it makes it sound simpler than than it probably was than it obviously was, but but yeah, that's amazing. It's really fun. I know it's like not a film for mm. everyone, but I don't think any film is for everyone and, and that's fine i've i my, my my own personal theory is if you look at if you look at i mean this is not i want to advertise a big online superstore but that you know the way that customers rate stuff my theory is if it's rated five star by 25 percent of people and one star by 40 percent of people i'm generally going to be all right with it when I'm talking about films, obviously not like everything, but like, yeah. I mean, I'm not, shower caps. I'm not going to use that theory for shower caps, am I? But but if it's <laughs> if it's a film, and it was weird because two two films that I kind of that I love, Only God Forgives and Ridley Scott's The Counselor, have that profile. I'm like, and that's my only anecdotal evidence. I mean, I'm, there's no proof of this, but it's my little. I I kind of hold on to it now. I think it's almost like if if people can love it and people can hate it, then I think it's doing something. It's doing something right. There's there's never room. I don't. There's there's enough room in the world for bloody 
stuff that's a bit meh. You know, we don't need more meh stuff in the world. Mm-hmm. We need stuff that's going to make us challenge what we think and challenge what we think about what we're watching. And it sounds like what you've made is going to give us that in buckets fulls. So I'm looking forward to it. Definitely saw some people walk out of the theater at the premiere. I mean, happy to see it, honestly. <laughs> they were like ready to acknowledge that that wasn't for them. And I was glad that they had boundaries. You know? Indeed. You don't have to sit here for two hours. It might not be for you. Well, look, thank you very much for sharing that about, about the film, Even Hell Has Its Heroes. If I wasn't already excited, I am absolutely excited now, Clyde. You've absolutely wet my appetite for that film. Let us move on now to three films that have impacted everything in your adult life, um, which sounds more daunting than it is. It's more about memories and how films have, how films form us, and and that kind of thing. It's not it's not the it's not the absolute building blocks. But I think I think having made a documentary like you have um, and been involved with a band for five years. And like I could say, like I was saying before, I got their first album. It's like, I think that all, I think art has a kind of tendency to personally biographize us without us really realizing. And hopefully we can tap into some of that, talking about these three films that you've chosen. For the people tuning in for the first time, uh, I'll just give a, the, the sort of rules as it were. So Clyde is familiar with the rules and so is the listener who's never listened to this before. Um, I've got three films. We're going to talk about each film for five minutes. First off the off the block is or the lot even is 2012's Persistent Persistence of Vision, directed by Kevin Shrek. Um, what, what what is it about that film? Where where are you in terms of where do you see that for the first time? What, why, why is it? Why does it have impact on you? I first saw Persistence of Vision in Seattle, Washington, at the Grand Illusion Theater, one of the smallest and most wonderful theaters in the entire world. It seats about 40 people. Uh, a, gr- a group of Seattle animators had gotten together to go see this film about Richard Williams, uh, a master animator who is working on his masterpiece film. It's like the end all be all of his career. Mm. And he struggles for years to make this film. And it was a pleasure to watch it with so many animators. Mm. And the and the end results of the film is spoilers. Yeah, okay? yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think mean, we can be safe with the 2012 film. You know, Richard, yeah. Uh, the end result of the, of the documentary is like Richard Williams has a catastrophic loss of his film. And Disney buys what is left of his film and turns it into a musical. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a horror show of a documentary. Yeah. Um, kind of displaying like all the horrors of capitalism and the ways it can ravage an artist. Um, Richard Williams was the animator for Who Framed Roger Rabbit and he developed like a a million amazing animation techniques. Uh, The thing that happened after I saw this film is we all went out for a slice of pizza down the street and as animators you talk and you just chat about what you just saw and the horror show that has been laid before you. And I mean, for UK listeners, this, this took place in the UK too. So mm. it's like interestingly rooted in, I believe in London. And um, someone, another animator, Tess Martin, 
who was in Europe these days, was like, would any of you guys try to make a feature film? And that was like a real moment for me when I was like, well, if this guy can try and fail, <laughs> I certainly could try and fail. <laughs> it was such a valuable lesson to watch like someone with extraordinary amounts of money and power try and fail. And to take away like that lesson is what I took away from that film. And it's just horrifying. The entire story is horrifying and the documentary shows it quite well. And yeah. So that's, that's what I love about that. It's film. interesting, isn't it? That, that a universal truth and one that they don't, nobody really tries to teach it is that the, the trying and failing is more common than the trying and succeeding in a way. It's not, that's not to put people off doing stuff, but, Everything we do, certainly in a creative pursuit, is a series of trial and errors and work in progress. And some of those work in progresses make it to something you call finished, and, and some wither on the vine. I suppose is the. I suppose this is a, a very dramatic version of of how how bad that can go. Unintentionally, I suppose. I mean, I don't suppose anyone set out. Don't suppose anyone set out to capture that story, but that's the story that the documentary captures. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so grateful to the, the person who made this film because it, we're all raised in this like culture of hero worship and like we only hear about the successes and to see someone who is like such a famous animator just catastrophically fail. It, it's heartbreaking to sit and watch this film, but it also just sparked something in me that made it fine to like try and write a feature and so my first feature is a stop motion animated mm. feature film um it's called tori pines and it's an hour long and and basically immediately following that film screening i went and started storyboarding and quit my job and did a kickstarter and it was like just this monumental no moment. that's amazing so glad yeah and what's so, the what's the appeal in a, in a digital age yeah. Of stop motion. I'm just such a sucker for the analog. And I think that's why Earth and I get along so well is we just, we love an answering machine. We love Super 8 film. We love a collage. You know, so it's just nice to go slow. It's nice to take your time. And even in animation, it const you constantly feel like you're rushing. So confusing well there's our first five minutes thank Addictive. you for sharing that i can't believe that you're you're my first of the i mean i've done i think nearly 30 of these now and you're my first to sort of i saw a film i made a film stories i've been hoping to get this story i'm so glad i've got it clyde thank you it was almost like i thought it was the I obvious thing every artist i thought it'd be the obvious thing i'd get talking to <laughs> filmmakers that here's the film that made me make a film kind of thing but that's amazing for sure Right then. I feel like every artist should watch that film. No, it's, it, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Second off the lot is 1978 Gates of Heaven, uh, a film a film that uh, which I've already commented on from a kind of what Errol Morris was talking about. And I think it's a fascinating thing because you were talking earlier about the idea of listening to the band as opposed to exploiting the band um, and then seeing, what, seeing the truth emerge because it's the only, if you let them, tell it then that's what 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 should it should emerge as it were whereas i think there's always that problem isn't there with, di with documentary filmmakers if i point a camera this way 
then I'm not showing you what's going on behind. So I'm only giving you a truth. There could be a massive fire behind me, but it won't matter because I'm showing you somebody looking cool under pressure. You know, it's like it, 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 the cameras are, it, it's weird, isn't it? The camera never lies, but it's a lying bastard at the same time. Because it, <laughs> it has a point of view. And if you, you can, you can play with that point of view. Anyway, I'm, I'm rattling on. Um, so what, why is Gates ahead? I love why, it. <laughs> you're making me do it, Clyde. Um, what what is it about Gates of Heaven that has impact on you? The 1978 documentary by Errol Morris. Uh, let's see. I first saw Gates of Heaven probably from like a VHS tape. I was living in Bellingham, Washington, going to college, primarily studying bong hits and skipping class. <laughs> and we had a local video store called Film is Truth, run by an extraordinary pair, pair of um, highly opinionated people. Right. And... They would never hire me. I was always like, here's my application. They'd be like, get out of here. We're not hiring you. But Gates of Heaven was something. Um, I lived in a house with many filmmakers and artists, you know, just paying cheap rent and skipping class. And Gates of Heaven is something we watched together. And it just struck me that, like, I just remember watching it and thinking, you can make a film like this? <laughs> this is absolutely baffling to me. And I... Love, I mean, Errol Morris, he, I think I recently watched the same interview as you, mm. you know, he's just like, starts the camera quietly. And a lot of people are very uncomfortable with silence. I am not one of those people. Mm. And so I could sit there quietly for a freaking hour until the person in front of the camera cracks and they just start like, spewing their truths and I, I feel like that's what he did um, I recently watched the interview with him about this film in which he talked about there being a newspaper strike that year and how and the film it was his first like feature and the film never got reviewed but Cisco Niebuhr um, reviewed it five times on TV oh, wow. on their show like they loved it and so the film just like had a life of its own um, and it really like kind of took off and made his career like gave his career some momentum but um this film deeply influenced the earth film there is a scene where the one of the sons of the pet cemetery mm. owners is playing guitar up on a hillside right. and he's just, just like this hippie they have like th i think three kids and there's a businessman who's trying to run the business and there's this like hippie kid and he takes his huge guitar amp up to the top of a hill and is just shredding the guitar and it's echoing over the fields of this pet cemetery. And like, that is like my heart. Like that scene, it just struck me as something that was so like magical realism and beautiful and real at the same mm. time. And I just like carried that through to the Earth film so many times. Like there's a scene in the Earth film where I make Jonas row a rowboat with, oars made out of guitars and that is a direct like directly influenced by gates of heaven so yeah i love errol morris he'll just sit in silence until people speak and is that is that, is that also a technique of his is that is that something that he he would do i mean i, I mean as an interviewer it's a game it is there's a game going on when you're interviewing anyway always about and, and the amount of times I go in the edit and I find I've interrupted and I annoy myself to hell. But also there is those times when I, I can take a beat and it leads to another interesting revelation from the guest. I mean, it is a, 
it isn't natural to do it and it isn't easy to do it, I don't think. Yeah, just a bunch of interviews with him. He definitely speaks to that fact. He's a private investigator also, like, has a job to pay the rent. And so I think he is a, a deep listener, mm. which is something, you know, a lot of Earth fans share is, like, deep listening. Yeah. I guess, I guess it, I mean, it's I really weird, isn't it? It's like you're, him, but you, you keep coming back to this thing about, about taking time out. It's like it's, it's, it's active what Errol's doing and what you were doing, but it's also a considerate way of taking time out. It's not just a one band, thank you, man, you know, for, for want of a better expression. Yeah. I am a big fan of the long game. I don't really prefer short stories or short films. I just really like to like sit and get to know someone, um, read a deeply lengthy book, watch a really long film. And I appreciate that about Errol Morris. I think he points the camera at things that aren't necessarily highlighted in general in the world and just lets you like take the time to get to know them. He's very curious. He follows his curiosity, which I think is a something that like a lot of adult people lose on their journey to adulthood, and then they just go in the same dog loops over and over. But if you just stay curious, yeah, no, that that again, that was something I got from the interview with him. That 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 just the notion of he read in a newspaper that there was a place for for pet for pets for pets to go to heaven, and everyone was going. He's like going, what? This exists. And that's the start of a documentary, you know, the idea of that's where he started. It wasn't like, he wasn't looking for a documentary. He's just reading. He's like, incredible that life is doing this already. Let me just go and have a look. Absolutely. I think uh, I just read some interview about John Waters in which he reads like six newspapers every morning too. I feel like people who read a lot are staying curious. So... Well, I mean, what's he called? Um, I remember reading something that Kubrick said about he he never he never likes to search out what he's being told to search out. He loves the incremental discovery of I find this that leads me to that that gets me to this because that becomes your own narrative then as well because you're forming the linkages, which is then creating your own interest, isn't it? You know, there's no way I would have listened to Godhead Silo, for example. Absolutely without earth you know before you know giving me the push-up to say you can you can go down here if you want there's not there's nothing to be afraid of <laughs> you can do it you know you can do it <laughs> right then we're moving into uh your, your one and only feature film on 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 the list by hook or by crook silas howard and ha- harry dodge's 2001 film um where do you see where do you see this for the first time and and who do you see it with and why was this why was this one a film that had impact on you or how was how did it have impact on you I mean it sound I mean I must admit this is a film I've not I must seen I've seen it in Bellingham hmm. by Hooker by Crook is a, a buddy tale of a road trip between two people going to San Francisco each searching for themselves and um having a friendship along the way, there is um, a lot to be said about it. I saw it in Bellingham early in 2001. Mm-hmm. It came out 
I've got it on DVD. It's scratched and worn and skips for sure. Uh, I'm a queer person. Mm. I'm a person who like doesn't necessarily identify deeply with gender in any way. And this movie um, talks about that. And it's about like two people who don't necessarily go by like he or she pronouns. They're kind of like gender is this ambiguous state in this Mm. film. And when people talk about like representation mattering and like seeing yourself on the screen, like I saw this film and I was like, what's happening? (laughs) That's me. Like, I don't, I don't understand the world around me. I don't understand why people are like so strongly into masculinity and femininity. And like, isn't there an in-between where we can just be like humanity? Um, And this film really speaks to that in a subtle way. It's not about Mm. that, but it is like representation matter. And, and when you're 20 years old and, growing up in a small town and you see this movie, you're like, wait, something like me kind of exists. Maybe. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to find out more about it. Um, This film was written by two people who were deeply involved in a writer's movement in San Francisco in the late 90s, um, early 2000s. There was like a very strong scene of writers like kind of collectively gathering and having um, like a cafe. Oh, wow presenting work live like constantly it was this huge movement of writing in america and these two people um silas howard has gone on to like become a television director a film director and many things Mm. and harry dodge has gone on to become like a modern artist in many ways so they're still like living and working and um this movie has been like compared to like John Genet writing or like it's connected to like a long lineage of people who aren't afraid to like tell their truth mm. um, regardless of how like the world might respond to it and it's messy and it's filmed on like VHS and digital video in a time period where like digital video like doesn't look good mm. and it doesn't hold up like it was like that real rough transition between VHS and digital and probably 720 or whatever it's just you look at it now and you're like jesus this looks rough that was a rough era for film production um but i love how rough it is and it's moving it's like one of the characters is adopted and they're asking all these questions about themselves like how can i find myself if i don't know where it came from and i just love a film that like asks questions and isn't always about all the answers. Yeah, and, this film is a huge question mark in the world. And, and, and it being a road movie, road movies have a neat habit of of allowing characters to sort of find pitching points to then ask the next question, almost because you've completed a bit of the journey. It's like which we we do in life anyway, but you don't feel it. You don't feel the earth move as quickly as you can in a in a movie in movie time, as it were. Yeah, it starts, like, with an ending. Like, one of their characters' parents mm. dies. And, like, so you start at, at the end, and and then they're just like, what's next for me? I don't know. Cue road trip. Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a genius classic narrative arc, but with, like, a culture that is not often filmed mm. and not often, like, 
able to make their own films and tell their own stories. So in that way, it's. I feel like it has the spirit of pump up the volume or something. It's uh, it's like fun and revolutionary. It has fun rock music in it that keeps you going through these kind of like troubling scenarios. And you know, there's a lot of magic in that film that can never be lost. No, I'm, no well, from what I, I watched the I watched the trailer you, you sent over, and it, and it I like I like the look of it because of the what because of it, it represents a time. I mean, it's weird if you think of like. Danny Boyle's movie, 28 Days Later, is shot on TV. And, and in many ways, it hasn't aged well, but in other ways, it's aged perfectly because it is of, it is of a filmmaking time. And I'm guessing when, when Hooker by Crook was made, the, the DV was like the, I guess, the, 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 the idea of having a Canon 5D is now, you know, that I can make a movie. Yeah. So therefore I can tell that story that isn't getting told. Yeah, I'm sure they had like the top of the line DV camera at the time. <laughs> I think the trailer makes it look worse than it is. I I watched the trailer and I'm like, I would not have cut this trailer for this film. Um, but you know, everybody makes their own choices. Well, it's uh, it sold me on the on the, certainly on the elements of it of the kind of noir noir uh, tones to it uh, that that appealed. You know, the idea of the the world isn't a level playing field. Yeah. So we have to, to make it level, we have to break the law, you know, and then obviously if we're not good at doing that, that's going to lead us into a different unlevel playing field, you know? Well, look, we've come to the end of your three films. So I thank you very much for sharing that. I thank you very much again for sharing with me uh, some of your stories from making Even Hell Has Its Heroes. And uh, it just gives me to say thank you very much for joining us on the Britflix podcast. Thanks for having me. You are a true pleasure to speak with. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.